Welcome to the ABM Conversations Podcast. The number one podcast for B2B marketers wanting to explore timeless account-based marketing strategies to drive revenue, customer engagement, retention, and everything that makes sense to both marketers and sales folks. No more fluff. No more vanity metrics. Live from India. Made for the world. Hello and welcome to yet another brand new episode of the ABM Conversations podcast. And this is me, your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss what it takes to build a product company that makes a difference. And to discuss that, we have with us someone who absolutely needs no introduction, David Cancel, who is popularly known as DC, the founder and CEO of Drift. For the uninitiated, DC has been a legend long before Drift. He has been a founder about five times, a serial CTO, and was the chief product officer at HubSpot. And when someone who has built product companies several times in his career, you just try to learn as much as possible from him. So that's going to be my attempt today. So without delaying things any further, DC, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I know lots of my uh, friends have, have joined you in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Such a pleasure to have you today. So yeah, let's get started. You know, uh, DC, you've been a founder five times and you've been a CTO at HubSpot, which is one of those companies that has not only been an industry leader since 2010, but has also spurred an ecosystem of companies around it. So when I look at your transformation as a CEO, I've observed different shades at different times. For example, if I had to specifically look at Drift, there are times where you seem to be zoomed in into the granular aspects such as the editor of content and messaging that goes out and other times where you zoom out and look at the macro things only. So as someone who has been a founder quite a few times, can you give us a perspective of your evolution as a founder at Drift since 2014 till now and maybe take us through what's the deciding factor as to when you zoom in and when you zoom out? All right. This is uh, something I think a lot about. So I always say that you know my management style or the way that I act and is exactly what you you found you figured out from the outside, which is I lived in this kind of zoom in or zoom out modes. In other words, you know, probably as which is common probably with a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm probably not good at the stuff in the middle. And the stuff in the middle is repeating processes, the details, you know, the days looking the same. And so you know, I'm I live kind of at the very high level or at the very lowest level in the lowest detail. And in terms of my role changing, I always, for uh, probably at least 10 years now, I've always had this approach that every year at the beginning of the calendar year, I think about what is the new version of me going to be? And that every year it has to be a different version when it comes to my business and, and the way that I work, but also my personal life. But here we're talking about business. And I kind of give that that feedback and that guidance to other people and say, like, that is something that you should be thinking about each year. You have to become a different version of yourself so that you can continue to grow. And more importantly, you can let the people around you, specifically in my role, take on more and grow as well. And so you shouldn't you should never stagnate. And so in terms of zooming in and zooming out, you know, I think I learned this from one of my first virtual mentors, which was Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. And, you know, I always say that most the cheapest and best book to ever read is called Made in America, and it's the story of the founding of Walmart, and that's where I learned these lessons. And he always called it over-the-shoulder management, which other people call trust but verify, which is you should 
always trust your team, but you always have to inspect. You always have to check the details in there. And it's through the details and when the details are off that those can be learning moments uh, for the team. And so I try to be at that zoomed out level most of the time. And then I have a set of guardrails that are important to me, one of them being uh, proximity to the customer, making sure that everyone is close, as close to the customer as possible. And when I see people going or hitting the guardrails a little bit, for example, a marketing team that's becoming insular versus really focusing on the problems of the of the prospects and the community that they're trying to solve or product teams also being insular and not spending time with customers, that's when I zoom in to the very lowest level to try to figure out what's going on. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, having been someone who has built quite a few successful companies, uh, you for sure also know the kind of people that you need on board at each stage. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, who were your first 10 hires at Drift? You know, what what were the roles that you prioritized in the initial stages? Sure. So at Drift, the first 10 hires, you know, aside from myself and Elias, and Elias being my co-founder and CTO, were engineers. So we needed to find engineers who could help us uh, start to build the product. We didn't have anyone else in the company at that point, besides from product team people, which would be engineers, uh, designers, and uh, 1PM, who had worked for us uh, back in the HubSpot days. And so that was the early team. That was the first 10 people. And we relied on product-led growth to really drive sales in the early days of the company. And so we had a totally touchless model, premium approach, and you know, I'm not a sales guy by by nature. My my co-founder isn't one, although his secret desire is to be one, even though he's the CTO. You know, in fact, I'm an introvert and my background is in computer science and product. And so, you know, using our product as a primary lever was to grow was natural to me. Elias is, you know, a frustrated salesperson and would love to be out there selling, still does. You know, he probably spends more time selling than anything else, whether it's recruiting people or actually selling to customers. And, uh, but, and of course, naturally, he's the extrovert. And we did that for, you know, for the beginning part of the company until we got to about 250K in ARR. And then we hired our first sales person. We made this, and I, I actually last week, I, Elias and I were at Harvard Business School here. They actually wrote a case and the, on Drift, and the, the subject of the case was selecting the first sales hire, right? And so this is exactly the case here. Right. Like, how does, how does one do that? Right. And so first, we hired our first sales hire and, um, and, and really did something that we had done at a company I started before, which was called Performable. And I started that with Elias. That was the company that HubSpot acquired and how I got there. The, you know, at that company, we did something where we, we were again, product-led growth, but then we hired a salesperson as a way to A-B test. We were an A-B testing company in some ways. And so like, we wanted to test like, okay, we were getting all this signal and this input from kind of this high velocity touchless model, but what were we missing? You know, what weren't we learning? Those are people that were just finding us. What would happen if we tried to reach out to people? What would we learn? And so we hired a salesperson not having anything figured out. You know, we did the same thing at Drift. Then, you know, we didn't have, you know, a persona focus. We didn't have materials. We didn't have, you know, lead lists. We didn't have, you know, anything. We didn't have one single tool. Uh, we weren't using a CRM. We didn't have anything that any you know, real salesperson would, uh, a real sales professional would really like to have. And so, and we told them and we were upfront and we were said in both cases, we don't know if we'll build a sales team here or not in the future. We're using this really as a way to test, gather information from prospects and accelerate not only our learning from a product 
uh, fit standpoint, but really an understanding of a value proposition from a marketing standpoint. And what were the hooks that were working? What was the thing, you know, for example, you know, we, we learned this back in Performal because we all sat in one room, all the engineers and this one salesperson named Heidi, and we would listen to her and she would, and we would just sit there and be like, oh, she just said something. And she got, when she used this one sentence, she can get people on the phone to actually have a conversation. When she uses this other sentence, they hang right. up immediately, right? It was, the, it was the best A-B test ever. And so then we would steal the lines from that were working <laughs> right. and then we would incorporate them in our headline testing and in our email testing as subject lines and headlines to see if they would work and, and they would work. And so it was this cheap form of uh, kind of I call ghetto testing. But for us at Drift, it worked really well. We hired that first sales pro. Again, we were at 250K in ARR from a touchless model, which was early. But within 18 months, we, we rocketed past $10 million in ARR. You know, and that was the, the power of bringing on sales just at that right time. Right, right. And something that you uh, spoke about that really interested me was you also spoke about the initial uh, product market fit. So would you say right now Drift has achieved uh, the product market fit? I mean, pardon my question if this does not make sense. <laughs> Yeah, that's a it's a great question. Product market fit and the whole um, ideas behind it is somewhere is is a place that I've spent a lot of time in. You know, back when Steve Blank was writing about you know the ideas of product market fit, and my friend Eric Reese was writing about lean startup, and you know we were starting we started Performable, and the guy who really nailed kind of the product market fit from a testing standpoint, his name is Sean Ellis, who kind of started the growth hacking movement in the world. And he was our customer zero at Performal and the tools, the A-B testing system that we were building at that time was basically his brainchild. And so like I've spent so much time in this product market fit uh, <laughs> right. world. Um, you know, do we have product market fit right now? Yes and no. I'd say yes, for sure. You know, obviously... We can see it from a traction standpoint and from validation of the categories that we've created. But like, you know, product market fit is something that's constantly changing. And it's not about product market fit as much as it is as, you know, do you have the right market and the right value for the market? And and that's the bigger question because I can have product market fit on a very small market or very, you know, nice to have product for a very, very tiny niche. And what we're trying to do is kind of address a very massive market a very massive problem and and deliver value there and that's that's constantly evolving as we go from you know the early days of drift of being a high velocity low touch kind of model to now where 70 some odd percent of our revenue comes from enterprise customers right right and that makes a lot of sense because uh what i wanted to also uh, unearth and understand is that how long did it did it take for uh, drift to get its first 100 customers and at what point did you realize that you're ready to go ahead and scale things up we got our first 100 customers pretty quickly i'd say less than six months we got our first 100 customers and those you know somewhat i won't say it's easy but like you know we were, it was a very low price point. We had a free product. This was the touchless days. We had a free product and we had an easy upgrade $50 a month. There was no annual commitments. And so like the bar was low, you know, it's always hard to get customers, but like it was lower and uh, we were starting to make some noise. And so like, you know, getting those first hundred customers, getting to that first 250K in our ARR was actually, you know, overnight uh, in some ways. But, you know, we felt like we had fit and we were ready to, we were close to fit, I would say. Felt like we were close to fit at 250K, which is early, I would say. 
And, uh, yeah. and that's why we hired that first sales pro because like, we felt like we were like, at least for that type of customer and the type of problem we were solving at that point, which has changed, of course, we were, you know, like we were 80% of the way there, but we couldn't figure out and we didn't have enough volume yet. Uh, we had hundreds of customers, but we didn't have thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers. And so waiting passively to analyze data uh, wasn't the right thing. And so to get that next 20%, we we hired salespeople and we had a deliberate kind of learning loop where we would learn and they sat next to the product people and the PM and we would learn all the issues that weren't apparent in you know the behavioral data that we were getting from the use of the product. Right, right. So for, for a typical product startup, you know, uh, what would you say is the set of parameters that they need to look at to say that, yeah, now is the moment I'm going to scale, I'm going to get more marketers, I'm going to hire performance marketers and like, you know, uh, do all the things that a typical uh, venture, uh, venture-backed uh, startup would do? Yeah, my friends, you know, my friend Heaton Shaw and my other friend Raul, who has a company called Superhuman, you know, I'd say they're the experts on product market fit these days. And and Raul has created a whole product market fit kind of framework. And so I would I would tell people to, to spend time looking at, at those, you know, to have a more quantitative kind of approach, kind of data-driven approach to doing it. For me, it's different. So if you were to ask me how I do it, you know, mine would be, and I think this is the a problem with a lot of early SaaS-based, technology-based companies. You know, they like to be, they're introverted like me. They don't like talking to customers. They don't like talking to people. They rather look at, you know, uh, data dashboards and amplitude dashboards and Google Analytics and whatever other dashboards you have and try to make inferences passively. You know, best case, they'll actually also go out and, you know, get information from surveys and things like that. But it's all like, they don't want to actually talk to customers. And for me, I'd say it's all about actually talking to customers, spending time there. And I, and you know, that qualitative approach will tell you a lot more, in my opinion, a lot faster than waiting for data to show up because data is rear view mirror, right? Data is like, it's, it's the past. You're, it's kind of like driving a car only uh, forward, but using a rear view mirror. Right. And so like, it wouldn't <laughs> right. work very well. I like to look out the dashboard. And so I talk to customers and I can feel as you spend more time, and it's not that mysterious, right? You spend, you talk to enough customers and you start to feel in your market, like whether you're getting a pull, whether there's a pull or you're still pushing, like, are they pulling you? Are they starting to pull you there? And I'm not talking about one or two customers, but like whatever your your niche is, like a significant amount of customers relative to the niche, like are starting to pull and you're starting to get interest right from them. And to me, that's when I start to feel like, oh, we're getting closer to product market fit, and at least for that initial stage. Right, right. And I, I love this because, you know, even as a marketer, I tend to uh, feel this a lot that um, many a times marketers tend to be also introverts who don't uh, end up talking to customers and they just end up, uh, you know, converting the product feature into a problem statement and thereby a solution. So that shouldn't uh, be the way it works, right? People need to understand what the PR, what the problem of customers is and talk that language. So I, I, I really love what you said. But when I look at Drift, you know, one of the things that is very obvious is that the kind of attention to detail that clearly stands out when it comes to storytelling and positioning. And for me, that is a case study because you started Drift at a time when Intercom was already making a dent. And then you didn't say something like, we are a revolutionary messaging tool or a live chat tool. Instead, you started talking about conversational marketing, which had an impact on acquiring mind space with your target audience. And now Drift has transitioned into the 
revenue acceleration language. So tell us a little about why did you move away from conversational marketing to revenue acceleration? So much to talk about there. I'd say, you know, <laughs> when we started, you know, someone like Intercom was, um, and, you know, old friends with the founders, but like someone like Intercom was like beyond just getting traction, right? They were already unicorn. They had, you know, they had over a billion dollar valuation yes. at that point. So it was like, you know, they were uh, pretty big and they had thousands and thousands of customers. And, you know, the our insight in starting the company at that point, which then led to the conversational marketing category, was that that we were at a different point in the market, even different from when Intercom had started, which started earlier, back when I was at Performable. We were at a point in the cycle from an adoption standpoint where, you know, messaging had become normal. It had become normalized. And throughout my career, I've been using messaging since, you know, for over 20 years now professionally, but it wasn't, it was for geeks. It was for people like me, right? Like when I used IRC, which kind of, you know, if you don't know what that is, it's kind of the predecessor of Slack. In some ways it's identical to Slack. Uh, And the first versions of Slack were based on IRC. What were there? Maybe a million people in the world using IRC when I was using IRC 20 some odd years ago. Like there weren't many. It was very small. It was a very small market. And so it wasn't normal. And even when, you know, companies started to build website live chat products, which have been around for a long time, they were mostly relegated to support because, again, it was not normalized. People were still defaulting to using phones to talk on, right? Not to text on, to talk on. Uh, you know, they were used to selling in person. They were, you know, just starting to really adopt email. And so messaging wasn't normalized yet. And when we started the company in 2015, right, you know, the observation was like, wow, we are, you know, if you look at the growth charts, you would say that, wow, messaging had become normal because everyone from your your child to your grandma to your, everyone in between was using messaging, but not only using it, they were defaulting it to be their preferred way of communicating. And so that was the shift. And so we said, like, we have to name that. Like, that is something different, right? Like, when everyone defaults to channel, and at the same time that they were defaulting this channel, they were moving away quickly from using phone, you know, phones to, from a business standpoint, to, you know, get cold calls on or emails, you know, to answer. And so really moving to messaging. So we created this category called conversational marketing. I hated the name conversational marketing when I came up with it because it was too too long. I didn't think people could spell conversational and then conversational (laughs) plus marketing. It was just, oh my, you know, there was so many variants that I had come up with, but then I was like, we have to call it something conversational marketing. I put it in the draw. We used it. Didn't really think about it. Then, you know, a year later I started looking around. I'm like, wait, other people are using conversational marketing in their marketing, you know, in their materials, including Intercom and others. And they're starting to use these words. And then we had Gartner, Forrester, Serious Decisions, all these analysts in the world come to us and say, we, we want to write the case on, you know, conversational marketing, the category. We're like, what? And then Wiley came to us and said, we wanted to write the book on it. And so we wrote the book on conversational marketing. But, you know, those things were, you know, the way I think about it, were very little to do with us, me drift, naming it. It was just a time, we just made an observation of something that was obvious in the world, but no one had named it yet. And so that's what we did. Right, right. Because at that point, you know, when you look at uh, a typical tool like a Zendesk or an Intercom, like pretty much everybody was using a chat tool in in the customer support use case, as you rightly said. And probably drift was uh, 
revolutionary in that sense when i say that i say that with air quotes because everybody uses the word revolutionary but the point is you uh, you had that mind space uh, that you know the moment somebody is talking of uh, a messaging tool uh, in terms of marketing and sales they looked at drift so that is why you know i was really surprised that in the recent times when you moved from conversational marketing to revenue acceleration i was a little surprised so that's why i wanted to know as to why did that change happen you know what we found out what we saw happening was that we created this category called conversational marketing we wrote the book we created certifications around it etc cetera, etc cetera. then uh, it morphed and kind of started going into this other related category that we then named conversational selling you know it's obvious sales and marketing but like that and then we created certifications taught did the whole thing and we needed a we needed a way to kind of unify those two things under one bigger idea and that idea was this idea of revenue acceleration because what we were doing from the very beginning that was different than all the people that were in the market when we started drift was that we were maniacal in our focus on revenue we weren't there to do support we said no to support use cases we were really only focused on the sales and marketing use case to accelerate revenue because we thought the paradigm shift was all about power moving from the company to the buyer and the best and you needed a way to communicate with them and if you did that and you adopted conversational marketing and selling that you would accelerate revenue so we created this mass this category as a way you unify these terms uh instead of having these two separate terms and so like it's a it's an audacious thing to try to take on because you know most companies you know would find it hard to create one category let alone two or three and so like it's it's a it's it's a kind of crazy idea but like <laughs> right. again we're naming something in the world it has less to do about us or drift or any of these kind of things and so just kind of helping people put you know until you put a name on it it's hard for people to to really attach to it to really understand it it needs a name it needs a way to for a reference right if if uh, you know christopher lockett is listening to this episode he would be so happy to hear uh, uh, you know uh, category creation and category design so many times because he he keeps talking about that is my friend <laughs> and, and my sensei that's my chris what's going on sensei i'll make sure you hear this <laughs> right right absolutely and uh, you know to make this a little more tactical can you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how do you go about building your narrative beat you know uh, conversational marketing or beat uh, about um, revenue acceleration so how does it typically catch on like how do people get to adopt it um, and how how does the thought process spread yeah i think it comes back to this kind of obsession i've had at drift which i never had before around storytelling and like how do we get these because there's so much it's impossible for people to get their product their idea to stand out today there's just too much competition for our attention which is obvious and we all know but like the way the thing that humans attach to are stories and so we had to reduce everything to a story and so the story of conversational marketing and selling was very simple and was easy to articulate and you know I, and i created that story which said went like hey you know think about If you think you've ever been to a store, yes, everyone's been to a store. So you start with something that everyone can identify with. Everyone's walked into a physical store. You know, think about your website as a store. It doesn't matter if you can actually transact on it, but in terms of like gathering gathering interest from a sales standpoint, it's your store. But like imagine you're you went you visited a store and there was you walked in the store and you were ready to buy something. There was no one in the store. You looked around and you were confused. You could see the products, but there was no way to buy them. And then you found this 
ledger that you could write down your name, phone number, email address, title, you know, blah, 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 all these kind of fields of information in them. And then once you did that, you had to, you leave the store, you go home and then you start getting stuff in the, in the mail from that company, you know, advertising their wares. Think about that as email and, you know, and think about that ledger as the form. And then one day in the future, it could be days, weeks, months, someone from the store calls you in and says, Hey, David, we're ready to sell you something. We'd like you to come back to the store. And everyone that I would tell that story to would laugh and they'd say like, including when I would say to a room full of marketers or a room full of salespeople and they would laugh and they'd say, that's ridiculous. That's the dumbest thing I've heard. And I would say, that's the only thing you do. If you're in B2B today, (laughs) you do one thing. That's it. Think about the, instead of the ledger, you have the form. Instead of the sending physical mail, you send email. And then someone gets back to you at some point in the day. It doesn't make sense. People walking into your store, they're ready to buy and you're turning them away. And the worst part of it is that your marketing and your sales team are in the back room while these customers walk in and they're arguing and the salespeople are saying, you never give me any leads. These leads are crappy and I have to create my own leads. Like it's like lunacy. It's insane. It doesn't make any sense. So that was the story. And that's how we started conversation marketing. And anyone we would tell that story to would get it and they would have a visceral reaction. And so for revenue acceleration, it's kind of similar. We've created a story around it and we and it has to do with the CRM, which is something that we're trying to replace. And, you know, CRM is something that doesn't make any sense today. There's no, it's the most insane thing you've ever thought of, right? If you think about a CRM, for most of us who are old enough, including myself, you used to go into an office and there used to be these things called filing cabinets. And then the filing cabinets were color-coded folders with little labels on them with pieces of paper in them. And every time that you would do anything, you'd have to go in the filing cabinet, find the right file, you know, get it out. And the most important thing was to put it back exactly in the right place or else no one else could actually use the information or find it, right? And so that was the way that we would do things. Well, the modern CRM is exactly that. It's a filing cabinet in the sky. Things have to put it, be put in a certain field, in a certain order, certain place. And if you don't do that, your manager yells at you. You as the person who has to put the stuff in it doesn't want to do it. And that is the basis for all business intelligence today. A system that is input by people that don't want to input the data. And worse yet, the thing that the data is supposed to describe <laughs> right. is only metadata because it's supposed to describe actual conversations you're having with your customers and your prospects and actual activities and events, but none of the actual activities and events or conversations are actually in the CRM, just metadata entered in by humans. It's the most crazy system anyway uh, out there, but it makes sense. When the CRM was designed from a technology standpoint, that's the only thing you could do. And so that was the model. Well, we think now there has to be a new model that allows people to actually focus on selling and marketing and talking to customers and actually building relationships versus being, you know, human record keepers. Right. I'm loving this. Uh, I'm going to make a confession here. You know, I really don't like it when uh, marketers who have very little experience post those obvious one-liners on LinkedIn that makes you say, really, bro? And, uh, but that's just my my point of view. Uh, and there, there's a reason why I'm saying this is that, you know, though there are so many people who celebrate such things, but I really love your approach towards marketing. First of all, I haven't seen 
many tech founders talk about marketing and sales with um, so much sensibility as you do. And from being a CTO at HubSpot and to becoming that sage who mentors upcoming marketers, that's really amazing. Your views, your strategy and tactics on marketing are actually grounded in reality and how things really work. So tell me a little bit about how did you develop your marketing sensibilities? <laughs> Thanks for that. I think I laugh because now most people who meet me and know me in a current context believe that I'm a marketer. I was <laughs> the far, furthest thing from a marketer. I was an engineer. So I didn't know anything <laughs> about marketing until starting Drift. Uh, and I think that was the key for me. The key was that I came, you know, I'm naturally curious. I have this desire to learn. I'm, a, I'm not even desire, uh, obsession and addiction to learning. And I wanted to figure out for the sake of building Drift as a company, when we were building it, because I thought building a brand was so important when we started this company, I wanted to learn how marketing worked and I didn't know anything. You know, despite being, despite building software for marketers for over 20 years, I didn't actually know anything about marketing itself. And so- It's hard to believe that. <laughs> not one thing, I'm telling you. Uh, so, but that was a gift because, the, because today's marketer is, has been trained in a world of channels and tools and systems and processes, but that's not marketing. That is operating a tool. Right. That's operating, uh, you know, <laughs> that's operating right. an app. That's what they know. And and because I didn't have that baggage, I had a beginner's eye, um, a beginner's mindset. You know, I got to step back and say, okay, like, how do people? Why do people respond to these marketing messages? Because to me, they were alien. Right. I would look at a marketing message or an ad campaign. I'm like, why is this compelling? Right. I'm the most logical robotic person there is. And so like, I'm like, why is, why does this build connection? And so I started to study human decision-making everything from Kahneman to everyone else you can read on, on how people make decisions. Uh, so read a lot on decision-making really started to study copywriting, but old copywriting. I really wanted to go back to a pre-digital age. And so I really focus on the 1950s, 1940s. And before that, back when people would buy things out of the back of a catalog, right? Or the back of a magazine or, you know, but basically sight unseen, they would read a tiny little thing and then they would mail a check or they would do something in order to buy something that no, they had never seen, no one in their town had ever seen, but there was something that was so compelling in these words that would get them to actually do that which was a ton of friction. Right. So what were they saying? So I studied copywriting. I studied human decision-making. I studied social psychology. I studied cognitive biases. I, I did all that kind of stuff. And that was the light bulb moment for me. Once I did that, I had this kind of, you know, for any of you who have seen the movie, The Matrix, I had this matrix moment, this like, I took the pill and all of a sudden I could see reality. And I was like, whoa, I could look <laughs> at an advertising campaign or I could look at a message that was successful and I could identify why it would work. I could use, I could look at the, I use this almost as a teaching tool inside of Drift, which is I use the Amazon product detail page because everyone listening to this has seen that page, right? Basically the page, that template that they use for every single product that you buy on Amazon. And I would look at that and I would understand why it worked so well, right? And, um, and it's funny because I, I use it as, as a tool and I show it to designers all the time and UX experts. And I ask them how they would redesign that page. And what they do every single time is they remove all the reasons the page works. Because to them, they're like, oh, it's cluttered. It's got too much stuff on it. It's got too much junk. Remove this, remove that. They are removing every reason why that page works. Because that page is designed in a way that it triggers different things for different personality types. And it does it. It's perfect work of art. 
It does it in a way that it can trigger all the different personality types, no matter where, whether you're an emotional buyer, a social-based buyer, you know, someone that's a practical-based buyer. And that is what Charlie Munger would call a Lollapalooza effect. And the Lollapalooza effect is when multiple cognitive biases are triggered at the same time without you knowing that. And that's what that page represents. Anyway, enough about that. But like, I became so geeked out on this stuff. And, uh, and I still find it funny because I speak to marketers all the time now about this stuff. And the first thing that I always ask them is I will hold up a copy of the most important book that you need to read if you want to understand this, which is the Cialdini's book called Influence. Same book that Charlie Munger uh, read and talks about, Charlie Munger being the business partner of Warren Buffett. And it's all about cognitive right. biases. And I always hold this up and I would say, you know, when we back when we could actually do face-to-face um, events and I could talk and I would say, how many people have read this book? And almost no one had read the book. You know, if there would be one person in the audience, it'd be amazing when I would do that. And this is hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. And I said, you're okay. not marketers then because you don't understand this. This is the most important part. You're not a marketer. You're a technician, <laughs> maybe. And I'm not trying to insult right. you, but like if you don't understand how people make decisions, like you cannot be a marketer. That's the part that will never change, right? That will never change until we evolve, which we haven't, on how we make decisions. That part will never change. It's the most important part you need to learn. Everything else, the tools, the tactics, tricks, this, that, whatever, like those things come and go. That Those things are not that important and anyone can learn those. But really understanding human decision-making is, is the most important thing you can do. Right. I, I love this. You know, I, I got into the world of MarTech in uh, 2012 and uh, there was one gentleman who uh, initiated me into this. And uh, the first thing that he told me was, uh, you know, a fool with a tool is still a fool. <laughs> I, I remember that till date. And He's a genius. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, the thing is, uh, you know, if, if you were to mentor a marketing fresher right now, what would you ask them to do typically in the first six months? Yeah. So um, luckily I spent, <laughs> I've spent many, many, many hundreds of hours on this and uh, including our own, you know, building our own marketing team and, and doing all of that, including past and present marketers at Drift. And uh, we've created, you know, we've created all the secret sheet codes. We've put it on something we call insider.drift.com. It's 100% free. You don't have to buy anything. And it's kind of a masterclass for marketers and salespeople, but more marketers than anything else. And everything that I'm talking about is there, you know, how we approach. And this is the exact curriculum. And I use the word curriculum, very important, uh, deliberate there, that we use to teach every single one of our marketers, uh, to teach every one of our partners, to teach our customers as well. This is the exact stuff, how we approach copywriting, how we think about marketing, how do we build events, how we do um, virtual events now, how do we how do we actually film them? Today we did a blog post on our blog that was everything you know about how we did our virtual kickoff uh, internal. It was like the equipment we use, the actual emails that we would send to the participants, the actual checklists, like every single thing is there for. And so, uh, and then we have that in video format on Insider. So. That's the shortcut of how to do it. It's there. It's curriculum. We teach it. We teach it to all drifters that join the team now. We're somewhere in the around 500 people at Drift. Every single person has been taught this, uh, everything from brand building, the copywriting, and everything between. Right. Love this. And now that we are uh, entering into the 35-minute mark, it's, it's time for us to get, enter into that uh, game show section that we call as the rapid fire. So the idea of this section is to uh, you know try and put the guest on the spot and ask you five-pointed questions and uh, make you take a stand or speak whatever comes to your mind. So are you ready for that? 
Yeah, bring it. I love it. Awesome. So here's my uh, question number one. And this is based on something that you said, uh, and I was smiling and nodding as I uh, read that. So you said that a few years ago, you went from being a news junkie to a complete news fast, which was almost like a cleanse for you. So how did that help you? Like what happened and why did you take that decision? Sure. So it's probably somewhere around eight years ago then that I started to do this. So I was a news junkie. I had every format. I have every feed. I was listening to everything. I was listening to news radio on my way to work each day, specifically the BBC. And the BBC is is the news format that I loved, or the news source I should say that I love, but also the one that that finally like caused me to cause uh, to take a news fast. And it was because each day I was starting the day not obsessed with news, but like I was listening to the BBC. No offense to the BBC, but like, <laughs> and everything that they talked about was bad news, you know. And so if you're familiar with the BBC, they have the bong, so it'd be like yeah, bong, yeah. <laughs> 532 dead to dead in uh, Indonesia, bong, mass genocide in Rwanda. Bong. It was just like, oh my, you know, it was just like, it was too much for me to absorb. It was just nonstop bad news. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, it just shocked me into like, at some point I was like, I'm done. And I was really focusing on new habits and, and testing new habits, which I still do today. And so I was like, I'm going to stop news, but like, I'm going to go any AB test. You have to go dramatic. And so I was like, I'm going to go 100%. I'm not going to read any news, listen to any news, nothing. I'm even going to talk about news if someone brings it up. And I did that and it was remarkable experience. And I've been, I have not gone back ever since, right? I, I, I am that person that, you know, people mention something to and I have no idea what they're talking about and they are floored. They think I live in a cave somewhere, <laughs> but it is liberating for me, right? Because like I can focus all my energy. I can be in control of my own energy, my own mood, and I can focus that. And, and so much time I was consuming on it. I can focus all of that time back on something productive, something to actually help because all of that news and all of the stuff that I was reacting to, I was helpless to. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't impact that. And no, no amount of talking about and, 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 you know, commiserating with someone else about something that they heard on the news was actually going to change this. And, you know, for many of us, you know, if you have, uh, you know, family and friends and, you know, uh, parents and stuff like that, you can see when they become, everyone has someone in their family that's obsessed, you know, watching news all day and crazy. And you can see how, once you do a news fast, how much that's affecting their yes. psyche. And how you and and you should never let something like that control you. So I'm a big advocate of of a news fast. Right, absolutely. Uh, I've been avoiding all sorts of political news for a long time, and as you said, you know, it's really, really liberating. All right. So here's um, question number two, and I think this is going to really put you on the spot. So if I had to allow you to pick only one among the two as to who inspired you the most, would you say is it Charlie Munger or uh, Robert Cialdini? Oh my God, I'll say Charlie Munger. Because Charlie Munger was the person who really, because of my obsession with him, uh, really put me over the edge on uh, looking into Cialdini and the cognitive biases. And if anyone's listening to this, search on YouTube, Charlie Munger, cognitive biases, and there's, all, there's an old talk on there where he goes through most of the cognitive biases and, and references Cialdini. And that's how I found it. So I will say, I'll give it up to Charlie Munger because he, he brought me to Cialdini. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Love that. All right. So here's uh, question number three. What's the number one question that a founder needs to ask themselves when they are starting a product company and why? Mm, this one was the hardest one for me to actually 
learn, like to actually understand it and learn it at the gut level. It's only two words. Why now? That's all you need. That's the only question you need to answer. Why now? Right. Because no matter how smart you you think you are, how novel, how creative you are, there's probably hundreds of people who have come up with the same idea. Uh, maybe they've tried it and failed. Maybe they're trying it right now, somewhere in the world, the same idea that you have. And so like, you have to ask yourself, why now? Why is now the time to build this product, this service, this company? Why is now the time where it's going to work when it didn't work in the past if anyone has tried it? Like, it's really this why now question. I always um, give you know, reference another YouTube talk, which I've listened to a ton, ton of times, which is a talk by Don Valentine, who is the is deceased now, but it was the founder of Sequoia Capital, a venture firm here in the US and also in India and all over the world. And he, that was the only question. And this is, you know, the legendary investor who kind of him and Arthur Rock started the whole venture capital industry practically. And really, you know, invested in Apple and Google and every other company you could think of. And the only question he would ever ask is, why now? Why now? And what he was trying to get at was, was this the big change in the world that was happening? And if so, like if he could answer the why now question, then a whole category, not just this one company, but a whole category of companies were going to be created. And he would be focused on not only investing in this company, but investing in all the companies in that category because a whole new shift was happening in the world. Right. Absolutely love that. And uh, the, you know, the simplest answer to most questions uh, or at least the thought process is that you just ask why and you go deeper. And sometimes <laughs> you realize that uh, it's, the questions are really simple. It's all simple. Just the answer is so tough. Yeah. I, I, you know, <laughs> the thing that I repeat the most, which drives everyone crazy at Drift and, and who knows me is just like simple, not easy. Everything is simple, <laughs> not easy. Everything is very, very simple. It's not easy, you know, and you can use all kinds of examples. Weight loss is one of them. The answer is simple, move move more, uh, eat less. But yet we need, you know, we pay for this massive industry, right? This massive category of companies in the world to help us do that when we already know the answer. You know, adherence is very hard. And so like simple, not easy. You know, I always think like, you know, one day, you know, you'll be a very, very old man and you'll look back or a very, very old woman and look back and say, I always knew the answer. The answers were very simple. They were always there. But, you know, <laughs> our own our own egos get in the way and we complicate things and we make everything seem so difficult and so hard. And we waste so much of our time in our lives um, when all the answers are very simple. And you can look back at ancient writings uh, across all societies and see all the all the answers are already there. Right, right. I think uh, your autobiography should be named Simple Not Easy. <laughs> I'm going to take that. I'll give you credit. Right, right. All right. So here's uh, question number four. Uh, you say that it's time to move from building a brand to building an icon. So can you explain what that means? <laughs> yeah, so um, the we became infamous at Drift, at least in our small community, of when we started the company of espousing this idea of building a brand, and not really focus on building a company or a product, but really how do we build a brand? And the reason we did that was because I believe, at least in SaaS and technology, which is where we operate, we are in kind of the third phase of the market, and that part of the market means that there's high competition. There's almost endless supply of alternatives. And in that world, you need to build a brand and an affinity to a type of customer to make them select your brand over the next best brand, right? And so like, so we studied a lot of, you know, brand building to do that. 
And so like now we have a lot of companies in, uh, in the B2B space in our world talking about brand building, focusing on brand building. And so, of course, I'm always looking for like, okay, what comes next? And for us, you know, my focus right now is like, how do you go from brand to iconic? How do you become an icon? And then a brand can represent, usually represents a product, you know, a service, a thing, but an icon represents a cultural movement, represents something bigger than a company, bigger than a brand. And it, then a singular brand, it, it represents a cultural shift in some ways. And I think, again, it, it's not because of drift. It's not because of us. It's not because of our products. It's not because of any of that, but because of we're really focused on this big, massive shift that's happening in the world that we have a chance at, you know, building something that is iconic. Right. Would you say Tesla is a great example of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Tesla is a fantastic example of an icon. It represents something more than a car, right? Like, you know, as people that you know will understand Tesla and what they're trying to do from, from a cultural movement standpoint, uh, even though they've never maybe driven a car, a Tesla car or been in a car, right? And so like it represents something bigger, a shift in the world. Right, right. So here's the final rapid fire question. You know, you've been uh, one of those few founders who has really contributed to, uh, you know, women taking up leadership roles. And uh, so I want you to uh, uh, take this opportunity to uh, give a shout out to some of the amazing women leaders that you have worked with or to whom you would like to give a shout out. Sure. First has to go to my mother, who's my inspiration. You know, my mother raised myself and, and my brother and was my role model for, you know, someone who worked for herself. And, you know, I became an entrepreneur or, you know, started businesses. I never knew what an entrepreneur was until 10 years ago, but like um, halfway into my career. But because of her, her being my role model. So she was number one as a role model. And I'm surrounded by amazing women. You know, we have uh, Trisha Gelman, who's our CMO, who inspires me and pushes me hard every single day. Uh, we have Krista Anderson, who's one of our board members. You know, there are people like Sarah Blakely, who I look up to a lot. If you don't know Sarah Blakely, you should follow her on Instagram. And she's the you know founder and CEO of Spanx. There's so many women that are that are inspiration to me, and that you know all of the all of my bosses at Drift are women. <laughs> they are, and they know who they are. And uh, but really, it was my mother who who's been my inspiration. Love that. And uh, you know, before I let you go, uh, I would like to ask you if if there is a parting message that you would like to share with our audience. You know, I think the most important thing is to um, another lesson I learned from Munger, which is like you know, to the smartest people, continue to learn each and every day. Right. If you just go to bed uh, a little bit smarter than you were the day before, not a lot smarter, just a little bit, in tiny little increments over a long enough period, those things will add up and compound and, and it will really be a big difference. And so, you know, that's the number one lesson. I'd say the other monger lesson that is the most important to me is that you don't have to learn everything through personal failure which was my mode of learning, that you can learn from other people's failure. And that is probably the only shortcut in life, which is learning from other people's failures and mistakes uh, and really, you know, bypassing those. You'll make an endless number of mistakes on your own, but you don't have to make every single one. Right, right. I really love that. I'm also a huge fan of uh, Naval Ravikant of Angelist. And oh, he also keeps too. talking about, uh, you know, the power of compounding. 
Mm, me too. I'm a big, big fan. Naval's a, you know, amazing person I follow for many, many years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for the listeners of the podcast, if they have to, uh, you know, if they would like to get in touch with you or have any follow-up questions, what's the best way to connect with you? Uh, the best way to connect with me is just to follow me on, on social media. On any any social media, I'm always the same, Dcancel, that's D-C-A-N-C-E-L. And uh, the most direct line that you could ever have to me is that you can text me at plus one two one two three eight zero ten thirty six. Right, you're one of those uh, rare, or probably the only uh, only person on the podcast so far who has given the direct phone number on the show. So I, I really <laughs> love that. Uh, I hope that everyone uh, texts me. I don't answer <laughs> the phone, but you can text me. Right, right. So uh, for the listeners of the podcast, that's that from us uh, this week. And thank you so much, David, for joining us. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We'll come back with another person and another great topic. And until then, this is bye from Yag. Have a good day and take care. Thanks for listening to the ABM Conversations Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share your comments with us. We're constantly looking for your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions to make the show more relevant to you. 